Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The United States has blacklisted eight Chinese tech firms for suppressing religious minorities in China. Meanwhile, China has effectively blacklisted a U.S. basketball team for supporting the Hong Kong protests. uh, I want to bring in Bill Lee to talk about this. Milken Institute chief economist. Bill, the examples of the last 24 hours are massive. And they just underline the fact that this tension is going nowhere, regardless of how the trade talks go this week and regardless of who is in the White House. John, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the notion that there's a, a, a trade dispute has now spilled over into a capital markets dispute. If we start interfering with global capital <clears throat> flows, that's really going to have massive implications for whether or not the global economy can pick up again. Because the global markets become so integrated, the minute the U.S. starts to play around with the notion that we might start to shave off the amount of support we give to, to Chinese stocks – uh, even even though, we yes, it's a real problem. We've always said that Chinese companies don't adhere to the same accounting standards that we've had uh, in the, uh, for other U.S. companies. But why bring it up now? And, and why bring up the, the blacklisting now? I think it's part of this kabuki dance where we throw everything we can on the table and see what the Chinese do to it. And, of course, the Chinese are going to back off. And, and I think that dispute, that kabuki, is going to require the principals to get together and reset the, door, the board again. And that's going to happen in November at the APEC meeting. I, I look, uh, Bill, at uh, all that's going on and the fact is it reacts within the market. What are the consequences of the market signaling breaking down to new lows? We're not there yet. But if we break down through that stress of late August, what does that signal? I think that the markets have become so confused with the degree of uncertainty, and now we're throwing even more uncertainty onto the plate in terms of messing with global capital flows. Um, it, it may get to the point where investors are going to give up, and we are going to have a real severe market crash, which will have real <clears throat> well, macro effects it, it, with the wealth effect. It, let's go to your expertise. Let's explain that in the partial differentials of imports and exports. Let's use the United States as the basis. Are we going to see diminished imports? I guess so. But what about our exports redounding on all this market and geopolitical turmoil? Our exports depend upon world growth. And in particular, it depends upon uh, the the supply uh, 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 chains that have formed for Mexico and Canada. So the first priority that we have to do for policy is to get USMCA passed so that we can at least set the production side of the economy. Then the, the, the issue is demand. We know European economies are going into recession. We know China has slowed, and that's going to hold back our exports. But look at the U.S domestic economy. It's only, you know, exports plus imports together are only about 13, 14, 15 percent of the uh, U.S. economy. So it's still a small share. But the key, the real killer is going to be when capital flows start to get messed with. And if capital flows start to shut down, that will hurt the U.S. To be clear here, we haven't seen that. But these news flows, John Farrell mentions the NBA. Okay, I think that's tangential. Fine. But it's additive, isn't it? towards where these two warring partners, uh, China and the United States, Catherine Mann's dysfunction, begin to talk about capital flows. Well, actually, it's not just additive. I think it's multiplicative. In fact, we're talking about logarithmic and exponential type effects where we have huge nonlinearities. 
Trade is something that we can deal with because it's a small share of U.S. GDP. Capital flows are not a small share of U.S. GDP. In fact, capital flows, the, the flows coming into the United States has what supported the U.S. economy for all these years. We start <clears> messing with that and we will interfere with U.S. growth. Link in Europe on this then. I was trained that our trade with Europe is far more substantial than the dynamics with emerging markets or developed markets. How do you fold in the European export-import dynamics with this trade war with China? In Europe, the domestic economy in Europe is very is very big. In fact, the EU together is about the same size as the United States. But the, the, the European trade has now become so dependent upon China demand that much of our our, 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 our supply chain connections with Europe are all ultimately leading to the demand that's in China. And that's where the, yeah. the, the, new, the new shape of trade has, has affected the U.S. economy. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, futures at negative 21, Dow futures at negative 193, and the yield market moves substantially. We see the 30-year bond in three basis points, 2.02%, and the 10-year at 1.52%. Again, uh, really quite something. John? Bill, I'd like to wrap things up by having a conversation about an argument that people make on this program, which is that somehow China can wait out the president and hope that he doesn't get a second term. The idea being that somehow there's this fluffy Democrat waiting in the White House for the Chinese to deal with him in a year's time. I just don't buy it. Last night, I got hold of the, uh, the trade stance of Senator Warren. She published it back in July. And you go through that trade stance, Bill, and you look at the details, and it's all about adhering to a certain set of standards, a certain set of standards that Senator Warren wants everyone who has a trade deal with the United States to meet. And it's so onerous, even the United States itself does not meet those standards. And Bill, the metrics might change with a Democratic president, but the outcome will be just the same, won't it? We will continue to have tension between China and the United States for as far as the eye can see. Boy, John, if Joe Biden gets thrown out and it becomes a, a contest between Warren and Trump, watch the Chinese run for a deal because they know they're going to get a much better deal out of Trump than they will out of the Democratic uh, extremist Warren position where uh, you, you know health standards, medical standards, all sorts of standards will be put into the, the, the imports into the United States. And China will have enormous barriers to trade erected because of a Warren presidency. Bill, great to catch up with you, as always. Bill Lee, Milken Institute Chief Economist, joining us from Washington, yeah. D.C. Tobias Adrian joins us now, IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department Director, formerly of the New York Federal Reserve. He also taught at Princeton University and NYU. Tobias, great to have you with us on the program. I want to reflect on a piece of research that you and the IMF put out last spring, back in April of 2019. In the United States, the ratio of corporate debt to GDP is at record high levels. In several European countries, banks are overloaded with government bonds. In China, bank Profitability is declining and capital levels remain low at small and medium-sized lenders. Tobias, do we have a problem? Good morning. I'm very happy to be here. Well, what we have seen over the past couple of months is that interest rates have come down, not just in the US, but globally. Today, the stock of negative yielding debt globally is close to $15 trillion. And of course, investors are reaching for yield. They want to reach nominal return targets. And that means that uh, that is rising around the world. And that does create certain vulnerabilities. 
Well, Tobias, this comes at a time when GDP growth has, what, a three-handle for global GDP? What are you looking for next year? Because many people are looking for a two-handle. And I just wonder, as the global growth picture decelerates, whether these vulnerabilities will look a whole lot worse? Well, over recent months, we have certainly seen an increase in downside risks. And central banks around the world have reacted to this increase of downside risks by aggressively moving monetary policy. There has been an easing of monetary policy in many countries around the world, including in the US, um, where the Federal Reserve has eased. But uh, we estimate that in countries with a GDP of 70% of global GDP, monetary policy has been eased. And that has taken away some of the downside risks to growth. What about the fiscal space that is out there? We spoke to Vitor Gaspar earlier this morning. Fold our salvation of fiscal space into how we will look at interest rates. Of course, with lower interest rates and interest rates that are expected to be lower for a long time, in principle, that does create some fiscal space. However, we do worry about many economies where debt is already high. Well, you worry about the debt is already high. Is the U.S. one of those economies? In the U.S., um, there are certainly some fiscal challenges, and we have urged the U.S. many times in the past um, uh, to address uh, fiscal challenges of the future. Tobias, thank you so much. Tobias Adrian with the International Monetary Fund this morning. Yad Azor is with us, and you need to know only one thing besides his services to the International Monetary Fund, is director of the Middle East and Central Asia Department, is he has had extraordinary public service to his Lebanon, his finance minister over a three-year span, and we are honored uh, that uh, Mr. Azor could join us. Now, Dr. Azor, I, I have to rip up the script with the new turmoil politically of Turkey, of Syria, and frankly, of the adjacent nations of the Middle Eastern community. How will the Middle Eastern community respond to the politics and the new economic tensions of this announcement by President Trump? Political tension has a toll on economy as well as also on the social situation. As you know, uh, the large cohort of refugees are coming from Syria, impacting economies of Lebanon, Jordan, and also casting uh, uh, a negative uh, impact on uh, trade and uh, flow of services and people between those countries. Therefore, the increase in tension is affecting countries of the region who in the last few years were not able to grow a uh, case in Lebanon or in Jordan higher than 2%, let alone yeah. uh, the humanitarian impact that this issue has on, the, on both uh, uh, host community as well as also the refugees. Your, your research is centered on the gleaming buildings of, I'm going to call it, oil Middle East. But after the Arab Spring, there's an attempt to find a resurgent or new or nascent capitalism within the Middle East. Give us an update on the ability to find capitalism in the Middle East. Is it, are, there, are there signs of life there? 
look, we are trying to help many of the countries of the region in order to build an economic model where growth is led by the private sector, where those economies can uh, provide the jobs for the young population. It's a region where, on average, 60% of the population is below 30 and jobs need to be created. Therefore, inclusive growth is very important as priority for the region. And only the private sector can help provide growth. And this can be done through uh, improving financial inclusion, helping startups and SMEs, and also make the state more efficient, but also more accountable. And this is why we are uh, right. gearing our offer, effort, uh, effort internally toward improving governance and helping countries fight corruption. How critical is Turkey within that mix and within the projection of the IMF? How does Turkey fit, with all the challenges there, how do they fit into this attempt for a better Middle East? Look, Turkey, Saudi, Egypt, Iran are the largest economies that are affecting uh, the Middle East, uh, both politically and economically. Of course, uh, those are big markets. For example, Egypt is a market of 100 million population. Saudi is the largest economy in the region, one of the G20 countries, and Turkey has a lot of trade um, and investment in the region. And therefore, whatever can be done in order to improve uh, um, or reduce the barriers uh, for flow right. of goods of people will have a tremendous positive impact on the region. Uh, very good. Mr. Azur, thank you so much. Dr. Azur, uh, Jihad Azur with the International Monetary Fund. An update there on the Middle East. Sarah House with us, doing strong economics at Wells Fargo and distill the American economy. Sarah, we've just got to go to the basic call which is, is it a 2% run rate or a one-handle on it? Does Wells Fargo think we'll actually dip to a run rate economy below 2%? Yes, we do. So we're looking at growth over the next couple quarters to probably come in somewhere around 1.5%. So that would be decidedly below the Fed's estimates of, of potential growth. And really, this boils down to the weakness that we're seeing in terms of business investment as we see the trade war drag on and uncertainty continue to linger. And to some extent, some moderation in, in the consumer space, oh. too. I mean, I understand the fourth or fifth mandate of the Federal Reserve System is to avoid trade wars. But Chairman Powell has to speak about all of this today. What will you listen for? So I would listen for what he's looking at in terms of, of what that red line is. So we've seen to some extent, I think Powell's had an easing bias over the, the past few months. But given that they've already cut twice, does he think that that should be sufficient for now? Um, given that policy does work with a lag, wait to see if things play out later, or just given the data flow that we've seen recently where it looks like the economy is continuing to weaken, does he think more accommodation is, is necessary? Let's talk about the data we've just had, Sarah. PPI has just posted the biggest monthly drop in more than four years, and I'm wow. trying to understand where the downward pressure is coming from. Have we got a demand side problem, Sarah? Well, I think we have seen demand gro demand growth slow, and so I think that's part of it. I mean, if you look at some of the details, part of the weakness was in that trade services component, so that's measured by margins. 
So not surprising to see that margins are getting squeezed right now, given some of the, the pressure from, from tariffs right now. So businesses are, are having um, to, to reduce those margins. Um, we did see some strength in, in the core services component. So it wasn't all um, completely weak. But I think bottom line is there's just still not a lot of inflationary pressure. Um, no sign that domestic producers are really taking much advantage or um, are, are lined up to where they can they can increase prices. Yeah, and I would go one step further, Sarah. No sign that the trade dispute between the Chinese and the United States has actually ended up with a broader lift to price pressure in America in the way that some people thought it might. What do you think of that? Right. So, I mean, we've seen, if, if you look at the NFIB survey this morning, I mean, plans to raise prices aren't going anywhere. If anything, we've seen them, them come down over, um, over the, the past year or so. And I think that speaks to the fact that the that the demand picture is weakening, and so you still have a lot of hesitancy among businesses to, to pass on those, those prices. Well, w- within the parsing of that is the idea that we will import, bring in a disinflationary tendency from global slowdown. I mean, frankly, this is a question I'll ask uh, the new managing director of the IMF here in an hour and a half or 45 minutes, whatever it is. But, but Sarah, is that what this is about, is we're importing the world's troubles? I think overall, when you when you look at where the weakness in the U.S. economy is is coming from, so we've seen manufacturing has certainly been been the weak spot, and so uh, to the extent that um, that that where you're seeing the the slowdown is more tied to that, that global yeah. base. Um, but you know, I think you you do have some offsets. Though. So while the demand picture is is slowing, of course, we're also having to deal with with the flip side of of this trade war, which is the the increased pressure from tariffs. Well, so it's um, it's not a clear cut picture. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah House with Wells Fargo here. After uh, is John, you what, what was that statistic, John? You had I missed that. The biggest the PPI monthly drop is the worst in what? X biggest years? biggest monthly drop in four years. Trade risk, geopolitical risk. To get the latest, we welcome our next guest, Tom Petrie. He's been covering the oil industry forever. I mean, in a nice way. Petrie Partners Chairman. Uh, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tom, let's just start with the geopolitical uh, backdrop for the energy complex. Just the news we've had over the last couple of days with Turkey and Syria. How do you frame your call on energy as it relates to the just ever dynamic geopolitical backdrop? It really is uh, as as complex as I've ever seen. We've got a situation involving Syria, the U.S. withdrawal beginning to look just like the abandonment of Saigon and uh, as a historical yep. precedent. Uh, and denied by the, by the president, but the fact of the matter is uh, uh, it's in the perception, if it's in the minds of those who are dealing with the, the consequences of it, uh, they're the ones that probably have the the best take on it. But we've also got other situations. Libya, uh, what's going on in Libya right now? The U.S. is backing uh, the, the, uh, the government in Tripoli. Yep. Uh, General Hata, uh, leading the rebels in the east, is being funded, is being funded by, uh, uh, basically by uh, the Saudis and, and Egypt and others. And so we've got this really complex situation where at times we're on one side of the table, on other times we, we're talking about our allies. And that combination 
just leaves us with a with a hopeless situation. The good thing is, I think that that because of a success of the shale revolution, uh, when we get when we test below 50 on WTI, pretty powerful self-correcting forces kick in. When we get above 65. Just the opposite, 65 on its way to 70, and we begin to curtail demand. And, and so those are the fundamentals that against the backdrop of, of a Middle East challenge yep. to deal with these uh, is really uh, not unprecedented, but it's as high as I saw 30 and 40 years ago. Right, exactly. So when we talk about uh, crude and just commodities in general, obviously supply, Demand. Um, it seems to me, not not being an energy expert like you, that the supply story has been a little bit in the background. It's been more about demand, and people are concerned, I guess, about global trade, trade uncertainties, trade tensions, and what does that mean for global growth? Has that been kind of the driver of maybe a little bit lower oil prices? It has. Uh, you know, I do think that uh, the the demand picture, it's the fear of future demand. Basically, because of the availability of new supplies in North America from the shale revolution, uh, the need has been there for, for global demand growth to be on the order of 1.3 or more million barrels per day per year in growth. Um, with, the, the, with what's going on right now, the fear is, is that going to be a 1.1, is going to be a million barrels a day, or is it going to be 900,000? If it is, then it's going to be a pretty severe test for OPEC to be the balancing factor because they need, uh, they need revenues to run their government in addition to maintaining their ability to supply oil. So give us a sense of how OPEC is right now. How unified are they? I guess it's OPEC plus Russia. Just give us a state of OPEC right now. Well, you, you, you put your finger right on it. There's Saudi Arabia, and their strongest ally uh, is not a member of OPEC, it's Russia. The alignment of interests there began in 2014 when um, uh, the then deputy crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, was making um, from, the, from April of that year to October almost monthly trips to Moscow. They formulated the idea, let's bend the supply curve in North America from the shale revolution. And for about eight to nine months, they were successful. They competed on, on for volumes. They competed on price. And we saw that, that $100 WTI uh, was driven through 70, which was their objective. But it went through it like a hot knife through butter and didn't bottom until it got down below 30 to $26.40. By which time they realized, gee, we didn't quite mean to make that happen. Right. <laughs> and... and uh, now we've spent several years building it back up. But what we, what we clearly have now is a situation where uh, uh, if you know tests below 50 don't really work for the shale revolution very well, and tests above 65 to 70 uh, don't work for global demand growth. And so I think we're in a zone there that's gonna work uh, given that, but it still requires some real adjustments uh, by the individual producers to make sure they're allocating capital to their very best returns. So let's go to that. We'll move from the just looking at the commodity to some of the companies. Again, suggesting maybe a 50 to 65 range is a pretty decent range for, for crude. How are the big oil companies, are they set up to maximize profits in that kind of range, do you think? The, uh, the, well, first of all, the, the major oil companies in North America, their presence in North America, they've been behind the curve on the shale revolution. 
because of the pressures that are developing here, they're getting a second kick at the can, a second chance to at least consider how they can move into uh, this and have it be a bigger part of their portfolio. The, the major companies are generally in pretty good financial shape. They're not over levered. They have full integration so they can turn the light, sweet oil that is typical of the major plays here in North America and especially in the U.S. into valuable product, uh, uh, oil, ga gasoline, diesel, and so on. So they're in, they're in good shape. Um, and, they, and generally, they're uh, competitive in the marketplace because they pay a dividend. So they're outperforming. For uh, the independents below that, were, who've been on the cutting edge of the shale revolution, uh, some are, are uh, pushing the limits on, on leverage, and they've got a challenge ahead for the next several years in all likelihood. And then those who, are, uh, who have watched their balance sheet are, are still well positioned, but there are probably more competitors competing for the best plays, and that probably sets up conditions where we'll get some consolidation over the coming three to five years. And you think that'll be in the context of maybe some of the bigger, more integrated companies coming and buying in some of the more independent companies, or maybe consolidation among the independents themselves? I suspect so, yeah. Okay, so we'll have, it's interesting. So the is the expectation when you, when you go out and talk to your clients and the companies you cover that oil is fairly stable in this range, barring anything crazy which could happen with a tweet tomorrow? Well, stable is a relative term. I mean, <laughs> when, you're, when you're fluctuating between a prices that we've seen in the last 12, 12 months where you touched on 70 and you've been as low as 49 yep. that's there's a fair amount of volatility in that but yes it's now a fairly well-defined range where we're going to see the movement of oil over something short of that upper range and and maybe only occasionally testing the lower range so in that sense it's it's a more normal behavior than we've had say in right. 2014. Tom Petrie, thank you so much for joining us uh, from Petrie Partners. He's a chairman there. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us the thoughts on the crude business, the energy infrastructure. Tom's been covering the industry for decades, well-respected, and certainly knows, the, knows it from the commodity perspective all the way down to the uh, producer perspective as well. So appreciate him coming in. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.